This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Michael Ben Shmuel and Yehudit, whose yard site is this week, the sixth day of Adar the first. May his soul be elevated in heaven. For this week's Parsha podcast, we have three wonderful segments, three stimulating segments, three segments that go deep and deeper behind the secrets, into the mysteries, into the mystique of the Parsha. I'm looking forward to studying it with you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. So let's begin. The Parsha starts with a fundraiser. And I mentioned last week that we're going to have a fundraiser sometime in the first quarter of 2024. Uh, we actually settled on a date. We're going to have a please guide on the second week of March. Not this week. This week in the Parsha, we have a fundraiser but not at the Torch Center. We have other exciting things going on at the Torch Center this week. For example, we had the first episode of the Torch Insider podcast. We're also doing another podcast, please God, about Israel on the This Jewish Life show. But please stay tuned for the annual Torch fundraiser. This week's Parsha talks about a fundraiser. It's a good way to get excited, to get a bit stimulated and prepared for the fundraiser of Torch. The Parsha begins with the assembling of the materials, of the funds, of the gold, of the silver, of the copper, and all the associated materials needed for the tabernacle. The Jewish people are in the wilderness, and they have had the sign of revelation in the timeline, according to at least Rashi. It's already past the golden calf debacle and fiasco, and the nation is told to do a fundraiser to have the materials to construct the domicile for God, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is a portable temple that they're going to take with them in their journeys, assembling and disassembling it as they go from encampment to encampment. And the parasha begins that they're told to give 13 different items, or maybe 15, depending on how you count. All these materials are needed for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle, and of course, for the vestments of the high priest, which we are going to read about next week. And we begin segment number one here with an interesting question. When you start off the list, it seems to begin in order of value. It starts off with gold, And then silver. Of course, we know gold is more precious. It's rarer. It's more expensive than silver. And then it goes to copper. Well, we we know that's like like the the Olympics, right? You have the gold, the silver, and the bronze at the Olympics. And guess what? Bronze is copper, of course, with 12% tin. But there's a hierarchy. It starts with gold, silver, and copper. And then it proceeds to the things that are of less value. And the commentaries asked a question. The very last two things mentioned on this list, after the three metals and the variety of skins and fabrics, the last two things that are mentioned are the Avne Shoham and the Avne Miluim, which are the Shoham stones, which are going to be placed upon the the Apho, the apron-like garment on one and either shoulder of Aaron. And the Avne Meluim, which are going to be the precious stones that fill the breastplate, the Hoshen of the high priest. And the Arachayim asks an incredible question. It seems like the order diverges from, initially it starts off as starting from the most precious 
to the least precious. But then it ends with perhaps the most precious of them all, the most expensive of them all, the rarest of them all, and that is these stones, these 12 stones that go into the slots, the 12 slots in the golden choshen, the golden breastplate of the high priest, and the two stones that go in the slots on the shoulder pads. So why is there a divergence from the, the what seems to be the order and the order from most expensive to least expensive, why does it end off with the things that maybe should have kickstarted this list, the two most precious, cherished, and expensive items? That's what it should start with. Why does it end with it? Interesting question. It's one of those questions that you wouldn't necessarily notice. Well, it's just giving us a list. You would run through it. But if you examine the list, it seems like there is a little bit of an oddity in how the list is composed. The Talmud tells us that there was a time when one of the stones of the Choshen, one of the Avni Milun, the Milun stones, was lost or was damaged, and they had to go buy it, and they went to the gem dealer. His name was Dama Benesina. We know the story. And they asked him for for the stone, and he would make an enormous profit if he sold the stone to the sages but the key to the safe was under his dad's pillow and his dad was sleeping. And this Gentile, this Dama Benesina non-Jew, he displayed the requisite amount of honoring his father. He didn't wake up his father, even though that meant that he would forfeit all that profit. And the Talmud proceeds and tells us that the following year, the Almighty repaid him and a red heifer was born amongst his flock, and when the sages came back to purchase the red heifer, which, of course, is vitally needed for the purity and impurity laws in the temple, he understood that he got the red heifer only because of his fastidiousness and meticulousness and care to not wake up his father, to honor his father properly. And if he says, I only want to charge you what I lost when I honored my father. And the Talmud says it was either 600,000 gold coins or 800,000 gold coins. So the profit for one of these stones is the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of gold coins. So these are very precious stones and they should go first. Why do they go last? That is the question of the Arachayim and that will be segment number one of the Parsha podcast for Parsha's Truma, 5784, year 8 of the Parsha podcast. And he offers three amazing answers. I want to focus on the final answer that he gives us. I think it's a very important answer. It's an important lesson. It's a very valuable lesson. And it's one that it's helpful for us in our lives. We know that these stones were donated by the Nisim, by the, the, the princes of the Jewish nation. Each tribe had a prince, and each prince brought the corresponding stone to their, to their tribe, the, their, their tribe stone in the Choshen, in the breastplate. But where did the princes get such precious stones from? We know when the Jewish people left Egypt, they cleaned house. 
They went and asked their neighbors and their friends that we borrow some gold, some silver, some special garments. And the Almighty gave the grace, the charisma, the goodwill of the Jewish people in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they just lent them. Someone's about to escape a place where they, your neighbor comes to, to borrow your gold watch. You're not that eager to lend it to them, especially when they're planning their getaway. But the Almighty intervened and they were unnaturally generous and they gave the Jewish people all their gold and their valuables. But it doesn't say that they gave them any of these precious stones. So where did they get these precious stones from? And it's a very specific list of stones. We're going to read about it in next week's Parsha. Where do they get these specific precious stones from? So the Talmud tells us that these stones did not come with the Jewish people out of Egypt. Instead, they were given to the princes with their manna. Of course, we know that the manna was the magical food that was parachuted to the doorsteps of the righteous, those who were wicked, they had to walk for it. But every family was allotted its manna. And the Talmud says the manna was not just food. The important provisions that they needed for the time in the wilderness, that was also included. For example, the Talmud tells us that included with the manna was jewelry. Included with the manna was makeup. For the women. That was included in the manna. And you know what else was included with the manna? Precious stones for the princess. Specifically, the 12 precious stones that were needed for the Choshen and the two precious stones that were needed for the Aphod. The Miluim stones and the Shoham stones. So how hard did these princes have to work to get these stones? How much toil, how much effort did they have to go through to get these stones? It was nothing. The Almighty delivered it to them on a silver platter. He parachuted it to them from heaven with their manna. They didn't have to spend money. They didn't have to go cajole their neighbors. It was just given to them. Something that is just given to you, you don't really value it as much. And it was given to you and you didn't have to work hard to get it. The fact that you donate it, that's not an exemplary sign of benevolence. That's not an exemplary sign of generosity. And therefore, the order of the Torah is in fact, it's, it's from highest to lowest. But in the eyes of the Torah, it's highest to lowest of importance. And to give up something which is hard to earn, well, that's more important. And you know what the easiest thing to earn was of this list? The Avne Shoham, the Shoham stones, and the Miluim stones. And yes, if you were to go to the gem dealer, you would go to the jeweler and say, well, what's worth more of this list of 13 different items? What's the most valuable? They would all say these stones. But in the eyes of the Torah, the measurement of value is by how difficult it was for you to obtain them and to give them. And how hard was it for you to part with it? You got it for free. It was delivered to you. And you know what it's for. You know that it's for the purposes of this fundraiser. And therefore, in the order of the Torah, it is the least important. 
you got it for free, it comes last. And this is amazing lesson number one of this week's Parsha podcast. There's a difference between how we assign value versus how the Torah does, how God does. If we were making this list, we would say, okay, what's, what, what's the most valuable? What's, what's the most expensive? And by our calculation, number one and number two on this list would be these stones. In the eyes of God, there's a different system of assigning, ascribing value. How hard was it to do? How much did you have to overcome to do that? How difficult was it for you? How much do you change as a result of this? And you know what? To give gold, that's harder than to give silver. Because it's more expensive. And it's more valuable. You need to work harder to get it. And therefore, gold comes before silver. Silver comes before copper, etc. And the very end, the easiest thing were these stones. And this gets to a much larger subject. And that is that in the eyes of the Torah, the things that matter are the things that are difficult. We've mentioned numerous times on the Parsha podcast, the teaching in the Talmud that someone who is a Baal Teshuva, someone who is a penitent, someone who repents, returns to God, they are on a higher level than someone who never sinned, than someone who never departed from the path of God. Someone is a tzaddik gummer, completely righteous person, pristinely righteous. They're very lofty, very high in their spiritual stature. But even higher than them is someone who, you know, has a rough past and maybe lived a life that was distant from their creator. But they repented and they returned and they are on a higher level. And the Ramam explains, why are they on a higher level? After all, you have a person who never sinned, pristine, untainted, unsullied in any possible way. How can anything be higher? The Balchuva, the penitent, they are higher, explains Rambam, because what they did was harder. It was more difficult. Their path when they explored and they tasted the forbidden fruit and they experimented in lifestyles that were far, far from their creator. And they overcame that. They departed that. And they transformed themselves. They changed themselves. And they went away. They abandoned their sinful ways. And they re-embraced their connection with the Almighty. That's a more difficult path. And you know what? That path, because it's more difficult, the result is they have higher status. They have more prestige in the eyes of God. What determines success, greatness in the eyes of God? How much effort, how difficult was it to obtain that? I always tell people that you know, I have some advantages because I was raised from a very early age to have a recognition and a cognizance of God. And I was taught the Shema and taught the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet and placed in the yeshiva from a very young age. 
I always like to joke that I'm, I'm indoctrinated. I'm indoctrinated. Every single Shabbos of my life, I've been exposed to, to an observant Shabbos, to following all the laws. And when I was bar mitzvah, I got my tefillin and I wore them every day since then. And I was sent to yeshiva to study Torah. And therefore, I have a leg up on many Jews that didn't have that experience. But the truth is, someone who did not have that same sort of upbringing, someone like that has a leg up on me. How fortunate are those who did not grow up with religion? Because if they embrace it, if they return to God, well, who's on a higher level? Again, let me clarify. Not to say that I'm a pristinely righteous person, but the concept Someone who never abandoned religion, never abandoned God, never abandoned Torah and mitzvah observance. Someone like that, maybe they're on a high level, and the the outsider would say, "Well, they could study Talmud in the original Aramaic, and you know they they know so much more about Torah." So you would say, "Well, the, these precious stones, they're more valuable." But in the eyes of God, they go at the very end. Easy. You were indoctrinated. You were reared on this. What did you earn on your own? How difficult was it for you? Someone who earns it on their own, they're the gold. The gold is more valuable than the precious stones. And yes, again, in absolute terms, the precious stones are more valuable, but in the eyes of God, that gold, that silver, that copper, all the other ingredients that were hard-earned are higher. Than the most valuable, in our eyes, the most valuable commodity that was not hard-earned. And therefore, how fortunate are, are those who have the opportunity to become a Balchuva? And this is true on a general level, but it's also true in, in specific areas, specific traits. We all have to perfect ourselves. We all have to upgrade ourselves. We all need to transform ourselves. We all need to improve. And everyone has a different collection of qualities, of traits, of attributes. And the things that are the most difficult for a person, those are the things that are most valuable in the eyes of the Almighty. What's the barometer of a person's greatness in the eyes of God? What's the yardstick? How much did you have to overcome? How difficult was it? How much did you have to override your Yetzahara? How much did you have to override your inborn instincts? You know, you think about people who are super social. They love people and they love to chat, they love to gossip. For them, their particular challenges may be that it's so hard to not speak Lashon Hara, to not speak anything negative or potentially harmful about another person. Other people who find talking to be painful, just speaking, chatting, causes them pain. I know a lot of people like that, and I suspect you do too. We see other people chit-chatting all the time and getting so animated talking, and we may tend to judge them unfavorably. I don't say negative things about other people. Remember, it might be super easy for you and super difficult for them 
and you do it, let's say you, you're pristine in that area, so that's great. But the Balchuva in that area is even greater. They have to work harder for that. You think about people who are naturally kind, naturally friendly, naturally ebullient, naturally amiable, and care about other people naturally. And then you have others who are a bit more crusty, a little bit more cantankerous, and social interaction is, it's a struggle. And if they're kind, and they find a way to open their hearts to others, and to be empathetic to others, and others who maybe would irritate them, well, that, that, that's, that's worth so much more. We all have challenges. We all have a Yetzirah. And every one of us have different challenges in different areas. And the things that challenge one person, they will be very different than the things that challenge another. And we have to remember, this idea, what comes easy to you may be very hard for someone else. And they won't understand you and you won't understand them. And everyone needs to make sure that not only are they doing things that are easy for them, not only are they giving, so to speak, those precious stones, they're also doing the things that are more difficult for them. You know, some people are blessed with intelligence. They have sharp faculties and they can study Talmud and it's easy for them and they just grasp it and their minds work with lightning speed. They could gobble up books of Talmud. And when you, when you assign rankings, you say, well, look at that person. Well, they, they studied so much. They, they deserve all the accolades. But who knows? In the eyes of God, is that something that they got for free? Or is that something that they struggle to, to get? Who knows? You know, in our family, we have a line. Oh, this kid sleeps like a wallby. It's just impossible to wake them up. It's almost like across the board, the whole family. You know, my my sister, she's an excellent mom. She has nine children. Nine children. When she sleeps at night, you have a newborn baby. And the baby needs to be fed. And the baby could cry. God bless her. She doesn't hear the baby. Why? Because she sleeps like a wallby. So her husband has to go... Poor guy, right? He has to go bring her the babies to to be fed in the middle of the night. She sleeps like a a baby. Yes, she adopted her husband's surname, but she still sleeps like a Wolby. And uh, when Wolbys are teenagers, you know, if if you wouldn't wake them up with aggression, (laughs) they'd sleep to noon. And it's a struggle. And then at night, you try to get your kids to go to sleep, and they want to party. And they want to chat, and they want to be helpful. I'll, I'll, I'll clean up the house. I'll do my homework. And you say, don't you realize this morning how hard it was? It was a nightmare to wake you up. And it just doesn't click. And then in the morning you come. And try to wake them up. It's time to go to school. It's time to get up for chakras. I'm so tired. You don't understand. I didn't sleep last night. You got to bribe them. You gotta threaten them. You gotta cajole and coerce and woo them. I'm currently running a campaign with one of my children. He's a big football fan and he loves the Bills. So I said to him, I said, listen, the Bills are coming to Houston next year. 
They have a game scheduled against the Texans. How about this? Every day, you get up on time, and you go to school on time, go to yeshiva on time, you get a sticker on a big poster board. And then you get enough stickers, maybe I'll take you to the game. And what do you know? It works. It works. So we made this massive poster board. And it's got a picture of the stadium. And there's like 50 slots out of the stadium. You got to fill up all those slots before you even get in. And even then, you start off on the nosebleeds. You start off on the nosebleeds. You want to have a decent seat. You got to make sure that you get up on time. And what do you know? It, uh, it, it works. He's been doing great. Sometimes I go to a shul on Shabbos. And we have chakras at eight. And I see these boys, and they come with their fathers. And all my kids, I'm like, they're all, they're all asleep. Because they sleep like a wolfie. Some things come naturally to us. And some things are difficult. And everyone needs to be aware of that. And what comes natural, what comes easy, people may laud you for it. But remember, if it's delivered to you with your manna, if it's easy, if you don't need to work hard to sweat to achieve it, it's last on the list. And regardless of how rare it is, regardless of how uncommon it is, if it's easy, if there's no work, if there's no sweat in the eyes of God, it's all the way at the back of the line. I had a, a pet theory when I was uh, in the halcyon days of yeshiva. I had a friend whose relative was a famous poker player. And he was friends with all the poker stars. I remember hearing that you don't understand how generous these poker players are. Now, I tell you, I've never been to a casino, but I gather there's an environment. Everyone's tipping very generously. I think that's because of this. If it comes to you easy, you know, you happen to have gotten, you know, a nice card on the river. It, it's not, it's not hard to part with it. And the value of that in the eyes of the Torah is low. And the things that are the hardest for us, our particular sacred cows, that is the most valuable to keep Shabbos. For me, it's easy peasy schmeasy. But someone who didn't grow up with it and they live and breathe college Football, that's a real challenge. And suppose two people observe Shabbos. One of them, it's easy. One of them, it's hard. One of them is experienced. One of them is a novice. The outsider may think, well, look, look, this one's well-trained. They're seasoned. They're an ordained rabbi. They're keeping Shabbos with adroit skill. And they're likely not making many errors, doing things properly. They're like these precious stones. So valuable, so expensive, so precious, and so cherished. But no, that is all the way at the end. The things that really matter are the things that are difficult. That is segment number one for this year's Parsha podcast, Parsha Shuma. We have the assembly of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and its Various vessels. It starts off with the ark, and then we have the cover to the ark with the two hewn cherubs on top of them. Now, what is a cherub? 
So Rashi tells us, a cherub is an image of a child, of a baby. In the temple, certainly the, the, the first temple, not the second temple, as we know, there was an ark, and that ark was built now in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus. And the ark contained the tablets, the broken tablets, the second tablets, the maybe the the Torah scroll that Moshe wrote. And on top of it, there was a cover. And on top of the cover, there were hewn two golden cherubs. And Rashi tells us, the cherubs, they were like the face, the visage, the countenance of a baby. Now we know that this is not the only place in the Torah that the word cherub appears. In chapter 3 of Genesis, after Adam sinned and he is booted from the garden, the verse tells us that the Almighty appointed two cherubs to protect, to thwart any attempt of Adam and Eve to re-enter the garden. And Rashi, as he does over here, he translates what a cherub is. And here he tells us that a cherub is, well, it's like this innocent face of a baby, the countenance, the visage of a baby. And there, he tells us that the cherub is something else entirely. Malache Chabala, punishing angels. And that here's the question, segment number two of the Parsha podcast. Wait a minute. The word keruvim, cherubs, it's the same exact word. How come in one place it's translated as the, the face of a baby? It's like the most innocent thing that we can imagine, just innocent baby. And then in the second place, it's translated as a punishing angel that's coming to exact vengeance, that's coming to Meet out who knows what, what sort of punishment to those who are encroaching? It's an interesting question. And I saw an answer that really startled me. The answer that I saw is that cherubs are indeed babies. What's a baby? A baby is the, it's a child. And a baby symbolizes like the next generation. And this idea of, of continuity. You have a child and please God, that line goes on and hopefully that child has another child. But what is the nature of our next of kin? What is the nature of our continuity? What does it do for me to have a child? Of course, a child. A child can be a very beautiful contributor to the world. A child could be righteous. A, ch- a child could do mitzvahs. A child could study the Amari's Torah. A child could contribute to their community, to their society. Of course, God forbid, the child gives us the possibility for a very different way of living. Villains were also once adorable, cute children. You imagine. 
Criminals were also children that had lots of potential. A cherub symbolizes the idea of what happens after your time here ends. If you have a child, and the child's righteous, and the child does mitzvos, and the child studies Torah, the child gives charity, and the child follows what Hashem wants of them, that is something which is fittingly placed on top of the ark in the Holy of Holies from which God speaks to Moshe. The absolute apotheosis of holiness is the idea of continuity and righteousness that on that is ongoing. If you have a child, child's righteous, after you pass, every miss what the child does, that accrues to your merit and your benefit in heaven. And the child, well, the child has a child themselves. You have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Every myth that happens as a result of what you initially did, all that accrues to you in heaven. The cherub is really acting on your behalf. But God forbid, you have a child and you don't take the necessary steps to make sure that the child goes in the proper path. There can be a very different epilogue to this story. This cherub can turn into a an angel, and an angel that exacts punishment. Because those sins, those crimes, are attributable back to the father as well. And this is the scary idea, the frightening and startling idea that I saw. The, the cherub symbolized the continuity. And the nature of the continuity, well, that has very stiff repercussions as to what that does to a person. It's a little scary, but it should embolden us to make sure that we do whatever whatever it takes to make sure that our cherubs, our children, our continuity, they go on the proper path. And finally, segment number three of the Parsha podcast, of Parsha Shruma, 5784, year 8. Some moving parts here. You ready? Let's go. After we have the body of the tabernacle, we have, on top of that, we have the, the curtains. And there were three or four curtains, different opinions. But the top one was made out of this mysterious skin made out of an animal called a tachash. So one of the 15 or 13 different materials that are raised for the purposes of the tabernacle is tachash skins. What is a tachash? So Rashi tells us in his commentary to 25.5, it was an animal and it existed only for that time. It didn't exist previously. It didn't exist subsequently it was an animal for the purposes of the tabernacle. And it had many different colors. According to the Midrash, it had six distinct colors. And this animal, its skin, was used to make the top, the, the final curtain that went on top of the tabernacle. And that's what we're told in Rashi's commentary to verse 5 of chapter 25. Now, the Talmud adds 
some other curious details about this animal, this tachash. This is in the book of Shabbos, page 28a, going into 28b. The first thing we're told is that this animal, it is, was so striking in its appearance that it was prideful. It had so many different colors, and it was prideful, which, as an aside, it's an interesting question. Why would you have such a prideful bird used for the tabernacle? But the Talmud continues, this animal, this tachash, in the times of Moshe, it had a single horn on his forehead. And it appeared to Moshe, to the nation, for the purposes of the Mishnah, and he used it to make the Mishnah, and then it was hidden away. It seems like it appeared for the Mishnah. It did not exist or was not around humanity prior. And then it went extinct. Not that it disappeared, but it effectively disappeared. It was put away. Seemingly, its its sole purpose was for the Mishnah. There are other things that are used, like there's wool. Wool, we know, comes from a sheep. Sheep are used for other things. Most of the items that were assembled for the Mishnah have other uses outside of the Mishnah. But this one, the Tachash, it is solely for the purposes of the Mishnah. It appeared to Moshe at the time. And after it was used, it was put away. It was archived for some time, maybe in the future. I don't know. But its sole purpose... Hitherto is for the Mishkan. And it had one horn on its forehead. It was like a unicorn. So interesting. So intriguing. So strange. Now the Talmud proceeds and tells us, well, there's actually one more animal that was a unicorn. That had a single horn. And that is the ox that Adam sacrificed. Of course, you, if you see an ox today, it will have two horns. But the ox that, that Adam sacrificed, that had only one horn. And that, in some way, is similar to this mysterious Tachash animal that also had only one horn. Now, what do we make of all this? It seems very mysterious. This is going deep and deeper. So the Kabbalists, they tell us that right and left, they symbolize opposites. The right, well, that's symbolizing kindness. And the left, well, that is symbolizing judgment. And thus, the right, because it's symbolizing kindness, it symbolizes also settlement. And the left, that symbolizes judgment and upheaval, and chaos, and dispersal. So we have a temple, for example. Temple is built, and it's destroyed. Temple 2 is built, and it is destroyed. So if we were to look at those temples, you would need to have two, the right and the left. However, the Mishran, the tabernacle, it was built by Moshe. And the handiwork of Moshe is always indestructible. The Mishran was never destroyed. And therefore, it's inappropriate to have two horns on this tachash animal because that would seem to indicate that there's, you know, there's, there's it existing. 
and then it not existing, the right and the left. There's the kindness, and then there, there's the judgment that annuls, that overrides the kindness. But because the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was never destroyed, the Tachash, the animal, whose sole purpose is for the Mishkan, it does not have two horns. It has only one because it endures. That's what the Kabbalists say. I want to go a bit even deeper, if we can, about this Tachash animal. It's got multiple colors, but only one horn. And this is the animal that's most exclusively associated with the tabernacle. All the other animals, well, they have, they have other functions in this world. This animal didn't exist beforehand, didn't exist afterwards, it was put away. It's solely for the purposes of the tabernacle, and it has only one horn. Unlike all the other animals that are horned, they have two. This one has only one. What's the secret? What is the difference between one and two? What is the secret of one versus two? So, of course, there's a lot of literature about these kinds of questions. Let's start over here. The Torah. How does it begin? With one or with two? The word biracious begins with the letter bet or bays, depends on how you pronounce that letter. But that's the second letter. Not an aleph. Aleph is one, bays is two. Biracious or bereshit, that is a word that begins with the letter bet or two. Isn't that interesting? Why does the Torah begin with the second letter? So, of course, we would say, that's just a coincidence. It's got to start with some letter, you know, maybe start with the first letter, but how else would you say voracious? If you had the, how else would you say in the beginning, if you had to use the letter Aleph? Okay, we got to use the letter Bet. We would think it's just not a, not a serious question. But there's all sorts of literature about this. The Midrash tells us that when God was about to create the world, the letters, they were created before the world was created. The Torah, well, that was created before the world was created. And thus all the letters were jockeyed for positioning. They all want to be the first letter of the creation of the world. And the Almighty, says the Midrash, disqualified all the letters until he arrived on letter Bet. And letter Bet made a petition. The word Baruch means blessed, like to bless Hashem. That begins letter Bet. And the Jewish people in the future will praise Hashem, will bless Hashem with letter Bet. It's fitting to create the world with letter Bet. And God was persuaded, so to speak. And indeed, Bereshit, in the beginning, it starts letter Bet. A second Midrash tells us that the, the letter Bet, the second letter, the letter whose numerical value is two, that is the fitting letter to begin the creation narrative with. Because the 
creation of the world really happens on two dimensions. There's this world, there's the physical world, and then there's the spiritual world, the world to come. And therefore, it made sense to create the, 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 or to tell over about creation with the letter beta to hint that there's actually something else going on that's paralleling this world, that's paralleling the physical world, and that is the spiritual world, the world to come. But there's more. There's still something left over. There's still something that needs to be done. The world was created, but it was not completed. Genesis is not the end. In fact, on day six of Genesis, it says Yom Hashishi, the sixth day. And the Talmud says, why does it say Yom Hashishi? It doesn't say Yom Harivi, the fourth day, or Yom Hachamishi. It says Yom Revi, fourth day, fifth day, and so on. Why is there a departure? Yom Hashishi, the sixth day, says the Talmud, because that is a reference to the other day sixth, the sixth day of the month of Sivan, the day of the Sinai revelation. Genesis is not complete until Sinai. And guess what? How does the Sinai revelation begin? What's the first of the Ten Commandments? It starts with Anochi. I am the Lord your God. And the word Anochi begins with letter Aleph. So Aleph does have its moment to shine. And again, there's a variety of Midrashic literature on this. In one Midrash, it tells us that after God created the world with letter Bet, the letter Aleph took it in silence. And God said to the letter Aleph, so to speak, why are you silent? Why are you not mounting a protest? And the letter Aleph said, well, the numerical value of Aleph is it's just one. All the other letters are, are greater. They're higher numbers. Of course, I'm, I'm the smallest one. It makes sense that I should be neglected. So God says, no, 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 because you're humble. I'm going to make the letter Aleph bigger than them all. The word Aleph, of course, means Aleph, which means a thousand. Bigger than all the numbers is the number a thousand. And of course, we know that the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet equal, what starts of 1 through 10, then 10, 20, 30, 40, 100. And the last letter is the letter Taf, which is, which is 400. But then you have the five special letters, the Mansapach letters, which are the five letters that when they appear at the end of a word, they are written differently. And those continue the numerical system, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900. And thus, the letter Aleph is when the cycle begins again, and that's the number 1,000. So Aleph, it was humble, and it was not maybe featured prominently in Genesis, but Aleph was given distinction, and God promised. When the Torah is given, when Genesis will be completed, when the creation is completed, when the heavens open and the revelation happens, that will begin with the letter Aleph. And the Midrash tells us that for 26 generations, the letter Aleph was waiting. And it was 
upset to a certain extent. I'm the first of the letters. You didn't use me to create Genesis. Where is my time to shine? And then right before Sinai, God proclaimed, now is your time to shine. And the commentaries note that, well, it's 26 generations, as we know, that there's 10 from Adam to Noah, and then 10 from Noah to Abraham, and then Abraham to Moshe, six. So it's 26 generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Kahas, Amram, and then Moshe. So there's 26 generations that the letter Aleph has to wait. Well, if Genesis started with the letter Bet, that's generation number one, then what's generation number two? Well, that's Gimel, and then Dalid, and then Hey, and then Vav. And you reach letter Tav, and that's the 21st generation. But then you have the five extra letters, the five letters of Mansapach. And that's the 26 generations. And now it's time for Aleph. And that is Anochi. That is the sign of revelation. So, so bet on one hand, it's, it's blessing. And there's a good reason to start the world with Bereshit, with letter bet, with number two. But it's also a little bit dicey because Torah is Aleph, is one. God is one. Anytime you have more than one, you have multiplicity, there's a risk. There is a potential for mistakes. You are susceptible to blunders. Heaven forfend, there could be polytheism. And that's the nature of the world. And that's the nature of Genesis. There is the opportunity for blessing, but there's also the possibility of multiplicity. And that is what's symbolized with the letter bet of Genesis. And that's viable until Sinai, until Anochi, until the Aleph. What happens? Sinai happens. The heavens are torn asunder. And we saw, as we mentioned a few weeks ago on the Parsha podcast, we saw there's nothing besides God. Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. Ataharei you were shown to know that God, he's the only one. Ain old Milvado. There's no one else. When the seven heavens were torn open, we had clarity. We knew God is one. Anochi resonated. That's the time for an Aleph. When we have this encounter with the stunning, utter singularity of God, that is the overriding, so to speak, of Genesis. It's the completion of Genesis because no longer is this going to start with a bet. No longer is there a duality or even a risk of duality. Now it's all clear. The creations of Genesis, it doesn't, it doesn't start with a bet. Because you look at the week of Genesis and there's room for mistakes. However, I will, I will point out, day one is also different than the other days. It doesn't say, it was evening, it was morning the first day. It says day one, Yom Echad. And the Midrash tells us that day one is different than day two, day three, and so on. 
because the angels don't appear until day two. And thus, day one of Genesis, it's not the first day, it's a class of its own. There is some degree of singularity on day one, on the first day, because there's nothing else yet that could potentially rival God. Of course, nothing can, but in the eyes of the creations, perhaps, there's room for such a mistake. So that's Genesis. In its totality, seven days of creation, it fittingly begins with Bereshus, with Bet. Yes, there's the blessing, but there's also the potential downside of forgetting God's oneness. And that's the creation of the Yitzharad. That's the, the higher upside, the opportunity to override that, and the lower downside. That is the bargain of Genesis. And then we have Adam. And what did Adam do? He sinned. He capitulates to the serpent. He imbibes the Sahara. And he is, of course, radically altered by having the Yitzhara inserted within him. How did Adam sin? He succumbed to the possibility inherent in Genesis, inherent in the multiplicity of Bereshis, and to atone, he sacrifices an ox with one horn. He's trying to reorient himself by reverting back to the singularity of the oneness of God. Through this sacrifice, he's trying to undo the damage of his sin. And specifically, as he just tells us, he chose the single-horned animal. Well, guess what? Sinai. What's Sinai? Sinai is the undoing of the multiplicity of Genesis. The Talmud tells us that the Jewish people at Sinai, they cleansed themselves from the venom of the Sahara. They removed the venom of the serpent. They cleansed themselves from the noxious impact of the sin of Adam and Eve. There is the Aleph, the Anochi, that cleansing that happened. They're, they're, they're like Adam before his sin. But guess what happens? There's a sin. There's the golden calf. There is the infiltration once again of the serpent. Though the nation was, was pure, and untainted, uncorrupted, and incorruptible, there were elements of the nation, the mixed multitude, that did not quite have that level of singularity. And thus, sin once again creeped in. And that's a catastrophe. It's a disaster. It's a debacle and a fiasco of epic proportions. And God says, okay, it's time to atone for it. Build me a tabernacle. The tabernacle, well, that's the atonement of the sin of the golden calf. And like Adam, like Adam, we attempted to reorient ourselves with the tachash, with the single-horned animal, the animal that most embodies the spirit of the Mishkan. All the other animals, well, they have other, other uses, other functions. This tachash has only one horn, because we're trying to recapture the magic 
of Yom Echad, the magic of Anochi, the spirit of Sinai that was lost. This is not to be misunderstood as saying that Bereshus is bad. That is the will of God. But there is an interplay between the multiplicity of two and the singularity of one. They're both needed. Genesis was done by God in that way in particular. That is exceedingly good. That was divinely ordained. And even the Tachash. It had all sorts of colors, and that's fine. So long as there's the North Star. There's that single horn. The Hashem Echad is one, that utterly unique oneness, as long as that is leading the way. We are in good hands. I appreciate your time, your attention in listening to this Parsha podcast. I feel like we we progressively proceeded from deep to deeper. We started off with a deep idea about the ordering of the materials for the Mishkan. And then we got a little deeper to the idea of the two types of cherub and the fact that we have to go cherub picking to, to choose what future we want for ourselves. And then we have this very advanced, very nuanced, very deep idea on the the animal. The animal that appears only for the purposes of the Mishkan. It's got only one horn and there are all sorts of secrets behind that little factoid. I thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. A splendid, terrific, uplifting, invigorating rest of your week. A sensational, uplifting, meaningful, productive Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, with the unending help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week.